Hi, Dave Emery here. This is For the Record Program number 1194. The Narco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang. This is being recorded on July 30th of the year 2021. Before getting into the main body of the program, uh, three quick notes, three links at the top of each program description and at the top of each Food for Thought post. One of those links will enable you to subscribe to the podcast that is being uh offered by sister station WFMU. So if that's the best way for you to consume the broadcast, there is a link at the top of each program description and each Food for Thought post that will enable you to subscribe to the WFMU podcast of the program. Another link will enable you to subscribe to the comments, most of which are put forward by our expert contributing editor, Terra Fractal. There is way too much going on for me to cover that in the course of a one-hour weekly or more or less weekly program, so please do subscribe to the comments. Again, most come from Terra Fractal, not all of them, but they are an invaluable uh, research source. Now, the other link will enable you to get the 32 gigabyte flash drive that contains all of my work, uh, some 42 years of broadcasting, uh, through for the record 156. Again, there is a link to click on that will enable you to get that flash drive and I emphatically recommend that people do that. We are going to begin a long series of programs that will be both a for-the-record series and also are going to be uh, collected into a, re- a, a, a um, anti-fascist archives program. This will be number 40. Uh, there obviously is a great deal going on, but perhaps the most obvious thing Connecting to China per se is the pandemic and the lab leak theory, I would say propaganda meme uh, vis-a-vis COVID-19. Uh, we have spent a lot of time on that. There is more to be said about the pandemic in terms of its macro-political and macro-economic uh, aspects, I think that we are headed very possibly for a third world war with China and the effects of that, even if it doesn't go nuclear, and I expect that it will, will be devastating. Uh, Let's hope that doesn't happen. But things are moving uh, in that direction. Many military leaders in this country are openly talking about uh, war with China. I think that the fundamental misunderstanding of China and of Asian politics in general uh, is something that needs to be addressed. One cannot, I think, understand uh, contemporary China or really Asia without understanding China's past, and in particular, uh, what led into the Second World War and what came out of it. I would characterize 
things that are represented by the American government and others and things that are represented in our media, quite apart from distortions on uh, documented destabilization efforts involving uh, overt and covert U.S. intelligence assets in both Hong Kong and Xinjiang province, uh, the positions that China is taking, I think, are best understood as reactionary with a small r. Uh, I don't think one can understand contemporary China without understanding its past, and we are going to be doing that uh, in this long series of programs. Eventually, we are going to get to uh, the Kuomintang regime of Chiang Kai-shek. He was a doctrinaire fascist. He also was absolutely adored by the American media, much of that adoration coming from his anointment by Henry Luce, the powerful uh, publishing giant of Time Incorporated, published Time Magazine, Fortune, and Life Magazine, among other publications. The history of Chiang Kai-shek, who was nominally at least part of the Allied cause, but was not only a doctrinaire fascist, and we'll talk about his doctrinaire fascism, his collaboration with Hitler, his collaboration with Mussolini, and above all else, his collaboration with Imperial Japan, even at a time when Imperial Japan was invading and wreaking havoc on China. It was the assessment of many, including P.V. Sung, uh, who was uh, one of the most important business figures in China under Chiang Kai-shek, at one point the richest man in the world, uh, reported to be among the largest stockholders of both DuPont and General Motors, an individual whose activities breached uh, the gap between the overworld and the underworld. P.V. Sung was uh, lionized as a tycoon by, among others, Henry Luce, and he also was inextricably linked with organized crime on an almost unimaginable scale. One cannot discuss Chiang Kai-shek's government without talking about its foundation, which was the opium trade and narcotics trafficking. This by virtue of the fact that Chiang Kai-shek was himself uh, basically a protege of and a political front for the powerful green gang of Shanghai and China, headed up by a remarkable figure named uh, Du or Tu Yuasheng, also known because of his prominent ears as Big Ear Tu. He was the most powerful man in China under Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, more powerful even than T.V. Sung, his younger brothers, his sisters, one of whom married Chiang Kai-shek and became the equally lionized uh, Madame Chang, and the other one was the wife, a, a, a real Lucretia Borgia type, a woman named A. Ling Sung, also a uh, sister of T.V. Sung, at one point the richest man in the world. She was married to H. H. Kung, K-U-N-G, who along with T.V. Sung, held a number of key financial positions in uh, nationalist China under 
Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek's narco-fascism was responsible for much of the drug trade, most of the drug trade to the U.S., and much of the rest of the industrialized world as well. Uh, after Japan occupied key parts of China, uh, they began supplying Chiang Kai-shek and the Green Gang with a lot of their drugs. In fact, it was the assessment of T.V. Sung, among others, that in fact the unwillingness of Chiang Kai-shek to fight the Japanese would ultimately drive China into the arms of uh, Mao Zedong and the Chinese Communist Party. In answer to the uh, battle cry, really, of the China lobby in the McCarthyite period in the late 40s and early 1950s, of, quote, who lost China, unquote, uh, it was the assessment of many, including T.V. Sung, that it was Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, the fact that Chiang Kai-shek would not fight the Japanese uh, to any significant extent, but was consummately involved in fighting against the Chinese communists in a civil war that began in the 1920s and lasted all the way up through 1949, was a key element of the support for Chiang Kai-shek by people like Henry Luce and others. The other key element of support uh, came from money, tremendous amounts of money, both uh, American corporations that invested in China to take advantage of cheap labor and the tremendous amount of profit coming from the narcotics trade. Indeed, in assessing Chinese Power politics in assessing uh, Chinese uh, China's attitude toward the uh, Hong Kong among other institutions, one cannot understand their position without understanding the past. And when you are talking about the history of modern China, really the last 180 years or so, you are talking about the history of dope the opium trade. You cannot discuss China without discussing the opium trade and uh, in this program and or the next. We will be talking about a very important piece of history that really is not only unknown to most Americans, but uh, really is something that influences uh, not only China's sensitivity to Hong Kong, and we've talked uh, at, in a number of shows, uh, for the record, 1089, 1090, and 1091, about active destabilization efforts by the U.S. and others in Hong Kong. We've talked about uh, a Ukrainian fascist presence in the Hong Kong demonstrations as well. Many people, uh, I would say probably most Listeners are familiar with the term gunboat diplomacy. That was a term that was coined during the Opium Wars, and it basically uh, applied to the naval military superiority of Great Britain, who used their militarily the militarily superior fleet to. Uh, basically jackhammer open uh, China for a number of different things. The main consideration, by no means the only one, was the fact that there was a huge, then there are very strong echoes 
from the past of China to the present. We're hearing about China's trade imbalance with other countries. We are hearing about uh, Chinese workers, mostly very bad things, all they're taking jobs away from the West. This is an old theme. And uh, one of the things that... Uh, coined the, or not, I shouldn't say coined, but, but precipitated the opium wars was the poor balance of payments, the enormous trade surplus that China had with Europe and Britain in particular. Uh, in order to correct that, the British East India Company uh, began importing tremendous amounts of illegal Indian-raised uh, opium, uh, that is India as in India, the subcontinent, or the, now the independent nation, not a reference to Native Americans. In addition to draining China of silver and creating an, a greatly expanded addict base in China, something that was opposed by Chinese leadership, the Qing or Manchu dynasty actively in, opposed the British importation of opium, and when uh, Minister Lin of the uh, the Manchu dynasty began actively confiscating uh, British opium stocks that were being in, in, imported illegally into China to help correct the uh, trade surplus. This led to a war. That war was the first of the opium wars, which guaranteed enormous, it did a number of things. And again, it came from the naval military superiority of Great Britain over China, and later the naval superiority of Great Britain and France in the Second Opium War, and in the Sino-Japanese and uh, Second World Wars, the naval superiority of Imperial Japan all had a profound effect, not only on Chinese life and Chinese society at the time, but I think they have done much to shape the Chinese power political and strategic position. We're hearing all about that Chinese uh, military emplacements on uninhabited islands in the Pacific and about their military buildup in and around their own territorial waters. And we're seeing uh, a fair amount of uh, naval military, military saber rattling by the U.S. and other nations, Australia, Japan, now Great Britain and others. Uh, that is not only an echo of the gunboat diplomacy, which a term which was coined during the Opium Wars, but it is something that is undoubtedly being viewed with... Uh, a, an alarmed familiarity to, or an alarmed strategic familiarity, to coin a phrase, by China. Because it was the vulnerability of China to naval attack that uh, led to the uh, very successful military campaigns by Great Britain in the first Opium War, Great Britain, France, to a lesser extent, Russia and the U.S. in the second Opium War. And the net effect of this was not only to correct the trade imbalance. We're, we're going to read some excerpts either later in this program or in our next program from some of the Wikipedia entries on the Opium Wars, and they themselves reflect uh, 
well, an editorial bias that I think probably comes either from MI6 editing of Wikipedia, which is open to uh, anonymous editing, uh, or perhaps U.S. intelligence or nationalist Chinese editing. But the gunboat diplomacy, which led to the successful military naval prosecution of the opium wars, uh, is something that I think has very much informed contemporary Chinese strategic orientation. Uh, they have built up their navy, and they have some a formidable array of uh, short and intermediate range missiles. However, they are centered; uh, they are based basically in their own territory, and although they are building large numbers of naval vessels, uh, the U.S. and other Western nations are engaged in an old tactic called threat inflation. During the 50s, uh, we were told that Russia had a lead on the U.S. and strategic bombers, which simply was not true. Then it was the missile gap uh, against which John F. Kennedy campaigned in part. There was no missile gap, and uh, China is... Uh, launching a large number of naval ships. However, they are much smaller with a smaller range than the large number of U.S. naval vessels, and they are not intended to project Chinese naval military power around the world. Rather, there is an altogether defensive strategy. They are looking to defend in a significant and decisive way their own marine territorial position, marine as in seagoing. They are not sending warships sailing through the Straits of Florida between Florida and Cuba, as the U.S. and other nations have sent ships sailing through the Straits of Formosa between the island uh, nation of Taiwan and uh, mainland China itself. Uh, I think that understanding the history of China, will yield an understanding, hopefully, of the contemporary situation, a situation about which I am extremely pessimistic, and I think the misunderstanding, really I think it is a a deliberate misrepresentation on the part of the U.S. and other countries, but at a minimum the misunderstanding of Chinese strategic position and their failure to take into account what happened to China uh, from the uh, mid-19th century onward, I think, is going to lead to a third world war. So we are going to be talking about China for a long time and talking about its history. And again, you cannot talk about China without talking about the dope trade. Uh, it was the foundation of Chiang Kai-shek's government. He was the dope dealer, so to speak, to the U.S. and many other nations. And indeed, it was the opium wars, the at first massive illegal importation of opium into China, and then the legalization of opium in China as part of the treaty of uh, the second the treaty that ended the second opium war that created the enormous opium trade in China. Now, when Tu Yuasheng again bigger to a brilliant and altogether sinister 
organized crime figure who was the most powerful man in China. Chiang Kai-shek was basically a political front for Zhu Yuesheng or Big Ear Two and the Green Gang of Shanghai. Zhu Yuesheng's power came from his coalescence of the opium trade into a cartel managed by Green Gang functionaries uh, with the collaboration of a guy named Pockmark Wang of the Red Gang. He also uh, worked as a detective with the Sûreté Bureau in the French Concession in Shanghai. The French Concession, like the British and other extraterritorial arrangements, were imposed on China, again, by the naval superiority of the British Empire in the Opium Wars. First, however, and I think also, in addition to understanding history and understanding the fundamental position of the dope trade in Chinese history uh, and modern Chinese history in particular, understanding anti-Chinese racism, I think, is or anti-Asian racism, although it is getting poo-pooed in this country, I think it is. Uh, it, it could be very accurately expressed by the title of a FAIR article that we read uh, last year, FAIR meaning fairness and accuracy in reporting. Uh, the journalist uh, basically titled his article, uh, The Yellow Peril Meets the Red Scare, or perhaps it was the other way around, Red Scare Meets the Yellow Peril. And I think that our current orientation toward China is both a red scare and also, at a deeper level, uh, a racist reaction to a people whose culture is different from ours, whose physical features are different from ours as well. Uh, <clears throat> we, I don't think, have ever accepted that uh, China could or would become an equal in the family of nations. China is not yet a superpower. They are still a developing country, but they are developing very quickly. They were a key part of the colonial empires uh, of the 19th and 20th centuries. Again, the Opium Wars did much to subjugate China, and understanding their Naval military inferiority, I think, is fundamental to understanding their military naval strategic orientation in the present time. Uh, and I think that uh, unconsciously, perhaps, uh, very consciously in other ways, we are seeing in China a new red scare and uh, also a yellow peril. I'm going to begin this program with an article that we used in, for the record, 1089. It is by Anna Swanson of the New York Times from July 20th of 2019. A new red scare is reshaping Washington. And this talks about the Committee on the Present Danger that has been a Cold War institution that has been revived by Steve Bannon, a former key Trump administration official, uh, someone who was very much a spear carrier for the Trump administration, even after formally leaving the administration. 
and he was at the epicenter of the anti-China effort. This article again, New York Times, 7-20-2019 by Anna Swanson. A new red scare is reshaping Washington, reads in part. In the ballroom across from the Capitol building, an unlikely group of military hawks, populist crusaders, Chinese Muslim freedom fighters, Uyghurs, and followers of the Falun Gong cult have been meeting to warn anyone who will listen that China poses an existential threat to the United States that will not end until the Communist Party is overthrown. If the warnings sound straight out of the Cold War, they are. The Committee on the Present Danger, a long-defunct group that campaigned against the dangers of the Soviet Union in the 1970s and 1980s, has recently been revived with the help of Stephen K. Bannon, the president's former chief strategist, to warn against the dangers of China. Once dismissed as xenophobes, and fringe elements, the group's members are finding their views increasingly embraced in President Trump's Washington, and as I indicated in uh, our series about COVID-19 and the American deep state, by the, quote, respectable, unquote, Biden administration. One more time. Once dismissed as xenophobes and fringe elements, the group's members are finding their views increasingly embraced in President Trump's Washington, where skepticism and mistrust of China have taken hold, and now in Biden's Washington as well. Fear of China has spread across the government, from the White House to Congress to federal agencies, where Beijing's rise is unquestioningly viewed as an economic and national security threat, and the defining challenge of the 21st century. This says it in a nutshell. Fear of China has spread across the government from the White House to Congress to federal agencies where Beijing's rise is unquestioningly viewed as an economic and national security threat and the defining challenge of the 21st century. These are two systems that are incompatible, Mr. Bannon said of the United States and China. One side is going to win, and one side is going to lose, uh, indeed. And uh, I, I would say that it, uh, it is safe to uh, characterize the transition through the American deep state from the, quote, extremist, unquote, Trump administration to the, quote, respectable, unquote, uh, Biden administration as well. An article talking about uh, anti-Asian racism in the Silicon Valley, also being propagated in no small measure by Steve Bannon, uh, also involves uh, another key Trump functionary who's also uh, a profound player in the Silicon Valley. He is the driving force behind Palantir, the alpha predator of the electronic surveillance landscape, and that is Peter Peel, T-H-I-E-L, an immigrant from South Germany and South Africa, whose views include the fact that democracy is incompatible with wealth uh, accumulation, hence his opposition to democracy. He also feels that where democracy really, really went wrong was when women were allowed to vote. He does not agree with that. Uh, the Guardian of July 17th of 2019 had an article, Peter Peel and Stephen Bannon find a new yellow peril over Google and China. This is by Frank H. Wu. 
the billionaire investor Peter Peel accused Google of, quote, treason, unquote, and called for a law enforcement investigation of the search engine's parent company. He speculated that the Chinese government has invaded its employee ranks. A German immigrant via South Africa, Peel is not alone. His remarks echo the repeated assertions of the rabble-rouser Steve Bannon that there are too many Asian CEOs in Silicon Valley. These claims, combined with similar charges of wrongdoing against students and professors of Chinese origin on campuses across the country, are as ominous as they are lurid. While Peel presents no evidence, Bannon displays ample prejudice. They are inspiring paranoia about everyone of Chinese heritage. And indeed, I think uh, the anti-China sentiment that has absolutely gripped Washington and that is the number one preoccupation of Washington and viewed in D.C. as the number one challenge of the 21st century. It comes from people like Steve Bannon, but it goes much, much deeper. Other sections of this article. The open open hostility to Chinese people as distinct from the Chinese government violates norms integral to America itself. On the face of these utterances is the identification of a community named by ancestry as a problem. Last year, the FBI director, Christopher Wray, characterized it as a whole-of-society threat to American Values. Indeed, he did. And skipping down still more. Nowadays, as earlier, actually, so a little bit of the history. The original Yellow Peril, now, actually, uh, let me begin a couple of sentences about it. Although in this new Yellow Peril, a specific ethnicity is targeted as a group, no line is drawn between citizens and foreigners. The original Yellow Peril was the notion promoted by Germany's Kaiser Wilhelm II in the late 19th century and by the American author Jack London that Asians might contend against Europeans and white Americans in a contest of racial superiority. I would say that exact awareness underlies American attitudes towards China. One more time. The original Yellow Peril was the notion promoted by Germany's Kaiser Wilhelm II in the late 19th century by the American author Jack London that Asians might contend against Europeans and white Americans in the contest of racial superiority. Propagandists such as Lothar Stavard wrote titles that would summarize the thesis. The rising tide of color against white world supremacy was a 1920 bestseller. Nowadays, as earlier, the people who fear an Asian takeover of Silicon Valley do not bother to add that Asians who become Americans are acceptable. They come out distinguished by looking at a lineup of random Asians, whether the one is a visiting scholar, quote, fresh off the boat, unquote, in that pejorative phrase being reappropriated, the other a sixth-generation Californian, quote, banana, unquote, yellow on the outside, white on the inside, in another derogatory term. If they did clarify that that, if they did clarify that, they meant no disparagement of those whose families came before their own, at least they would be pure nativists rather than also racists. Uh, I think that goes to it, and in addition to, 
It goes to the essence of what is gripping us. Uh, China is not threatening to uh, take over the U.S. It is gaining uh, parity in certain aspects of his 5G and certain uh, tech companies. Uh, ultimately, uh, China has five times the population of the U.S. and a much larger uh, geographical territory, although it doesn't look as uh, as much as large as it actually is on the Mercator projections. Uh, despite that, the U.S. is spending something like four times as much as def- uh, on defense as China, despite the fact that they have a much larger country. And uh, ultimately, I think the only way of, quote, halting China's rise, unquote, and I think that the well, maybe I'll talk later on in this series about the orientation uh, of this country. Uh, I, I would submit that after what I call the underground Reich took this country over, the prevailing view, as expressed in the Thousand Years Conspiracy, uh, a book that's available for download on the website, is that of the Teutonic Knights. And uh, Arthur Winkler of that book. Uh, characterized the decisive attitude uh, of the German power structure as the when the, the Teutonic Knights fought two wars and conquered the Hanseatic League, or Hansa. The Hansa, although they were fiercely competitive, was a mercantile league, and the fundamentals of the Hansa were business. Uh, the Teutonic Knights, on the other hand, were a military organization, and uh, their attitude, one of military conquest and exterminationism, was the one that gripped Germany and ultimately uh, came to a head with the Third Reich. I think that if we were dominated, if we manifested a worldview uh, more along the lines of the Hansa rather than that of the Teutonic Knights and the Underground Reich, looking on a developing China as a market opportunity could enable uh, the U.S. to make an awful lot of money. A, a developing China, a developed China, could very well be the uh, rising tide that raises all boats. However, if there is a third world war, if we insist on holding China back, well, that is going to not only destroy the global economy, but I think it will ultimately uh, become nuclear. Uh, China is still, as I said, a developing nation. However, they have made enormous progress. There are a lot of oh, supplemental observations that uh, I want to make in connection with this series. I'm a little torn as to whether I should make them at the end or as I go along. But I think, uh, again, in understanding contemporary China, one has to understand its history. And I think when one looks at individuals like the aforementioned Big Year Chu or Du Yuxing, or someone with whom he collaborated, the the Japanese fascist and gangster uh, Kadama Yoshio, Understanding the brutal conditions in which they grew up is a key to understanding what they became. Uh, by the same token, understanding the traumatic 
history of China, and what uh, Sterling Seagrave, an author whose work we'll be using in a big way in this series, what he described as, quote, the stupefying misery of daily life in China is fundamental to understanding uh, China today. Uh, I am not in the least little bit surprised at the excesses of not only uh, revolutionary Russia or Bolshevik Russia, but also of uh, Mao Zedong. When you have a population, most of whom are suffering from PTSD and the horrors that were visited on the Chinese people, not only by the uh, Qing Dynasty, by Great Britain, by uh, the Green Gang, by Chiang Kai-shek, by the Japanese. Uh, it is going to leave a population with PTSD. What would be remarkable is if that PTSD uh, smitten population did not have some traumatic and very violent swings. I think in many ways China is emerging as what we might see as the first post-PTSD socialist uh, government. And although they have a long way to go, they also are making tremendous progress. For one thing, China is not fighting wars. China is, has not been in a war in more than 40 years. That was a border war with Vietnam in the late 70s. They have not been in a major war uh, since Korea, and that was the only major war in which China was involved since the conclusion of the Chinese Civil War in 1949. And the U.S. lured China into that war to make a very, very, very long story, very, very, very short. Um, U.S. intelligence officers were informing MacArthur and the other commanders of the U.N. force in Korea that they should not approach the Yalu River, which was the border between China and Korea. And they said in no uncertain terms, if you do approach the Yalu River, China is going to get involved in the war. Well, MacArthur did not listen to his intelligence officers. He did approach the Yalu River, and China did get involved, and they actually routed the UN forces, the famous uh, retreat. Uh, fighting retreat from the Chosen Reservoir, perhaps the best-known engagement of that uh, route. Uh, we talked about that, by the way, in For the Record Program number 1171, uh, uh, The Missing Chapter, Part 1. But again, China understands only too well how bad war is for a country. They have not been in the war in more than 40 years. They've only been in one major war since the, well, really World War II at the conclusion of the, over, of the overlapping Chinese Civil War. That was Korea, and we lured them into that. That is a very important thing to do. In that same period, we've done uh, very little else but fight wars. Uh, I would note also that China under the Communist Party is really no longer a purely communist country. I think the term state capitalism is the best term for contemporary China. They obviously have enormous private enterprise. It is supported by the government, and unlike in the West, the government is the dominant force in regulating that private enterprise, but they certainly have some enormous private companies, Alibaba, Huawei Electronics, and others. Uh, China does have private enterprise, however, it is not allowed to be the dominant element in China as it is in many Western countries. 
I think, as one author put it, uh, China did a remarkable thing. They pivoted from capitalism or communism to capitalism while keeping the chassis of their political system the same. That is the best expression I have seen. I think state capitalism is a better characterization of China than, quote, communism, unquote. However, under the governance of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, China is making enormous progress. In 1981, 88% of the Chinese population was at or below the poverty line. That was down to 0.7% by 2015. That is, again, when you go from 88% poverty to 0.7% in 34 years, you are doing something right. There was an article in the New York Times earlier this year well, they were talking about how uh, COVID-19 had uh, retarded China's attempts at uh, lifting the most extreme, uh, extremely poor people out of extreme poverty. Uh, and I've no doubt that the pandemic has done that. What was so interesting was that even though this was an anti-Chinese article, like most anything else you're going to read in the New York Times, they noted that five years ago, there were 56 million people who lived in extreme poverty in China. I think they defined that as living on 92 cents a day or less. Five years later, that was reduced from 56 million to 5 million. It's about a 92% reduction in five years. In 2002, the Chinese middle class was 4% of the population. By 2018, that was up to 31%. That is an almost eight-fold growth in 16 years. In the year 2000, roughly 2% of the Chinese population were online. That was up to 29% by 2009, probably a lot higher today. Again, China is still a developing nation, but they are developing very quickly. And I think the phenomenon of a developing nation becoming a real power and able to stand up to uh, the countries that had dominated not only China but other countries in the developing world and the uh, at one time the colonial world. I think that is a prospect that alarms this country no end and will not be allowed to take place. There is also again a tremendous anti-Asian racism. Uh, one of the ironies of that, and we're seeing that in terms of the anti-Asian, anti-Chinese attitudes of uh, not just Stephen uh, Bannon and uh, Peter Thiel towards Google and the Silicon Valley, where uh, there is a very large and significant Asian-American presence and also Asian presence in the tech industry. One of the interesting things about the anti-China racism that uh, informs much of American attitude toward that country uh, for the last 200 years is that the Chinese are very good workers and have been all along. That is one of the reasons why they do so well in tech. They also are very education-minded. And it also is at the foundation of some of the most brutal elements of uh, anti-Asian and anti-China sentiment. Uh, we're going to look 
at a section from a book that is going to be uh, a major source of our discussion in this series. It is called the Sung Dynasty, capital S-O-O-N-G Dynasty, by Sperling Seagrave, published in hardcover by uh, Harper and Rowe, and copyright 1985 by... Uh, Sterling Seagrave. Again, Sterling Seagrave and his wife Peggy have written many books uh, that were just superbly used for the Yamato Dynasty, and we'll be coming back to their gold warriors in this series as well. Uh, one of the elements of fallout from the second opium war, in addition to making uh, opium legal in China, and it was through the two opium wars that Hong Kong became a, a British colony. It was basically uh, Hong Kong and then later um, the Kowloon district of Hong Kong were appropriated by the British during the opium wars using gunboat diplomacy, using their naval military superiority. One of the conditions, one of the elements of the treaty from the Second Opium War was to force the Qing or Manchu dynasty to allow the exportation of Chinese laborers to the West where they were prized as workers. They were very good workers, who worked very hard without complaining to the same extent. And for that reason, they were both very desired by Western employers and in turn... Uh, when economic downturns would uh, affect uh, elements of the Western economy, in this case the U.S., the anti-Asian racism directed toward those workers whose emigration to the U.S. was forced by British gunboat diplomacy in the Second o uh, Opium War uh, Previously, the Manchu dynasty had forbidden Chinese to move abroad. However, because of the desires of Western employers for high-quality, albeit cheap, Chinese labor, inexpensive Chinese labor, uh, the exportation of, quote, coolies, unquote, of Chinese labor to the West was enabled through, again, the gunboat diplomacy, the naval military superiority of the Second Opium War. And part of the upshot of that, and I think something that can be seen as of one or as part of a continuity with the anti-Chinese uh, ideology uh, expressed by Stephen Bannon and Peter Peel, I think this is of the same character, albeit in the 19th century, and dealing with blue-collar workers. Turning now to the Sung Dynasty by Sterling Seagrave. In the Pacific Northwest, anti-Chinese rioting had aroused so much horror around Seattle that President Cleveland was obliged to take action. America's Wild West was on the rampage against Chinese. As Charlie, as Charlie Sung, the patron of the family whose children TV Sung, and uh, Mei Ling Sung, and A Ling Sung became key elements of Chiang Kai-shek's uh, narco-fascist government, and whose other daughter, Ching Ling Sung, married Dr. Sun Yat-sen, and became a uh, left-of-center critic of Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, we'll talk more about her later. In the Pacific Northwest, anti-Chinese rioting had aroused so much horror around Seattle that President Cleveland was obliged to take action. 
America's Wild West was on a rampage against Chinese. As Charlie Sung crossed from sea to shining sea, Chinamen were getting scalped by whites on the fruited plains and on Purple Mountain's majesty. With the collapse of the silver boom, a recession had swept over the West Coast in the 1880s. Jobs were hard to find. Manufacturers turned to Chinese labor because celestials, meaning the Chinese citizens, made fewer demands. In retaliation, unemployed whites were whipped into a yellow peril frenzy by unscrupulous editors and politicians. Chinatowns were put to the torch. White vigilantes staged pigtail cutting parties in which they not only hacked off Chinamen's cues, but ripped off their scalps as well. Beheading, which was not which was not characteristic of America, occurred in places as far afield as Montana. One more time, beheading, which was not characteristic of America, occurred in places as far afield as Montana. In one of the most extreme and gruesome atrocities on record. A mob severed a Chinaman's genitals and took them to a saloon where they were roasted and eaten as prairie oysters. Thousands of Chinese fled the white peril and went home to China. In consequence, the population of Chinese in the American West dropped in the late 1800s from 110,000 to barely 60,000. The bloodbath reached a climax as Charlie headed back to Shanghai. At that very time, mobs in Rock Springs, Wyoming, hacked 28 Chinese residents apart and burned others alive while the town's proper ladies stood by clapping and laughing. They were following the advice of the editor of the Montanian, who wrote, quote, We don't mind hearing of Chinamen being killed now and then, but it's becoming too thick of late. Don't kill them unless they deserve it, but when they do... Why kill them lots? Unquote. In America, local laws and ordinances against Chinese were becoming so universal that Congress began to set limits on Chinese immigration the first time that America had ever restricted the entrance of a particular nationality to its shores. In the beginning, the Manchus had prohibited Chinese from leaving their own country, but the foreign powers wanted cheap labor. One of the results of the Second Opium War was to force the Manchus to allow Chinese immigration. The Western powers, America in the forefront, then promoted and ran the coolie trade. In the Burlingame Treaty of 1868, Congress affirmed the right of free movement between China and America. But when the railroads were finished, cheap Chinese labor was a burden rather than a blessing. Congress then revised the Burlingame Treaty drastically and in 1882 passed the Exclusion Law, barring entry of all Chinese except teachers, students, merchants, and tourists. Chinese who were already in America were prevented from becoming naturalized U.S. citizens. Immigration from China plummeted from 40,000 in 1881 when Charlie was at Trinity to only 10 individuals in 1887, just after Charlie went home to Shanghai. And that, again, that emigration, that use of the coolie trade, unquote, was one of the conditions imposed on China 
by the treaty that concluded the Second Opium War, which formally legalized opium in China, thereby paving the way for the ascent of Chu Yuasheng and the Green Gang who controlled Chiang Kai-shek. And also, the Opium Wars gave Hong Kong to Britain and then expanded that colony in the Second Opium War. We'll, we'll talk about the Opium Wars uh, I guess we'll go into that in more detail in our next uh, program. However, uh, I think it's worth noting here, and this is a, a major tip of the hat, to the Seagraves, we've used our Yamato Dynasty and Gold Warriors. We'll be using Gold Warriors again in this series. However, this book, the Sun Dynasty, is just an amazing work and is so important for an understanding of the history of China. Sadly, it is out of print. Um, there are links in the, the description for the show to, like, Amazon and Abe books that uh, will enable people to purchase some of the uh, used copies. Sadly, the book is out of print. It would be wonderful if someone would reprint that book. If, if someone does, please, uh, if someone finds out about it, let me know and I will promote it enthusiastically. But what is worth noting here is the price that Sterling and Peggy Seagrave have paid for their journalism. Uh, as uh, the conclusions of the book, which we will read uh, at the very end of this series, uh, called The Concubine in the Well, those who speak for the victims uh, pay a price. And the retaliation to which the Seagraves have been subjected is discussed in uh, a, an introduction to the book Gold Warriors, and one of the books uh, that, that got them threatened was the book that will be a mainstay for this series, The Song Dynasty. The authors write in Gold Warriors, Many people told us this book was historically important and must be published. Then warned us that if it were published, we would be murdered. An Australian economist who read it said, quote, I hope they let you live, unquote. He did not have to explain who they were. Japan's looting of Asia and this hiding of this war gold in American banks is closely linked to the issue of Holocaust gold hidden in Swiss banks. And uh, then skipping down. We have been threatened with murder before. When we published the Sung Dynasty in 1985, we were warned by a senior CIA official that a hit team was being assembled in Taiwan to come murder us. He said, quote, I would take this very seriously if I were you, unquote. We vanished for a year to an island off the coast of British Columbia. While we were gone, a Taiwan hit team arrived in San Francisco and shot dead the Chinese-American journalist, Henry Liu. Taiwan, by the way, was under the Kuomintang government, uh, basically governed by the Kuomintang in this period. And again, the book we're talking about is the Sung Dynasty. Reading again. When we published the Sung Dynasty, we were warned by a senior CIA official that the hit team was being assembled in Taiwan to come murder us. He said, I would take this very seriously if I were you. We vanished for a year to an island off the coast of British Columbia. While we were gone, a Taiwan hit team arrived in San Francisco and shot dead the Chinese-American journalist Henry Liu. 
When we published the Marcos dynasty, we expected trouble from the Marcos family and its cronies, but instead we were harassed by Washington. Others had investigated Marcos, but we were the first to show how the U.S. government was secretly involved with Marcos gold deals. We came under attack from the U.S. Treasury Department and its Internal Revenue Service, whose agents made threatening midnight phone calls to our elderly parents. Arriving in New York for an author tour, one of us was intercepted at JFK Airport, passport seized, and held incommunicado for three hours. Eventually, the passport was returned without a word of explanation. We ran, when we ran Freedom of Information queries to see what was behind it, we were grudgingly sent a copy of a Telex message on which every word was blacked out, including the date. The justification for the censorship was the need to protect government sources which are above the law. During one harassing phone call from a U.S. Treasury agent, he said he was sitting in his office watching an interview we had done for a Japanese TV network, an interview broadcast only in Japanese, which we had never seen. After publishing... The Yamato Dynasty, which briefly, mentioned, which briefly mentioned the discovery that is the basis for gold warriors, our phones and email were tapped. We know this because when one of us was in a European clinic briefly for a medical procedure, the head nurse reported that, quote, someone posing as your American doctor, unquote, had been on the phone asking questions. When a brief extract of this book was published in the South China Morning Post in August of 2001, several phone calls from the editors were cut off suddenly. Emails from the newspaper took 72 hours to reach us, while copies sent to an associate nearby arrived instantly. In recent months, we began to receive veiled death threats. What have we done to provoke murder? To borrow a phrase from Jean Ziegler, we are, quote, combating official amnesia, unquote. We live in dangerous times, like Germany in the 1930s, when anyone who makes inconvenient disclosures about hidden assets can be branded a, quote, terrorist, unquote, or a traitor, unquote. Despite the best efforts of the American and Japanese governments to destroy, withhold, or lose documentation related to Golden Lily, we have accumulated thousands of documents, conducted thousands of hours of interviews, and we make all of these available to readers of this book on two compact discs available from our website, by the way, which is no longer online. We encourage others with knowledge of these events to come forward. When the top is corrupt, the truth will not come from the top. It will emerge in bits and pieces from people like Jean Ziegler and Christoph Miley, who decided they had to do something uh, that uh, dealing with the uh, confiscated Holocaust loot in Swiss banks. As a precaution, should anything odd happen, we have arranged for this book and all its documentation to be put up on the Internet at a number of sites. If we are murdered, readers will have no difficulty figuring out who they, unquote, are. And uh, uh, in our next program, we'll read what happened to Sterling Seagrave when he got, when he and Peggy got the threats from the Taiwanese hit team. They began living on a sailboat for years and traveled around the world. However, when they uh, settled in southern France, well, actually it was in Catalonia, in uh, no, it was in southern France. They had some problems. We'll talk about that, however, in our next program, because this is the end of this program. This concludes 
for the record, program 1194. The Narco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, Part 1, being recorded on July 30th of the year 2021. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.